Hey guys, it's Jesse. Uh, the episode you're about to hear is about some controversy going on within Google. An obvious point we failed to make in the actual episode, so I make it now, is if you work at Google and you want to talk to us about any of this, even just to tell us why we're wrong, definitely don't hesitate to get in touch. Block to reported podcast at gmail.com. You can obviously use a burner account uh, if we need to at some point figure out a way to confirm you are who you say you are. I'm sure we can find a safe way to do that, but definitely don't hesitate to reach out because we would love to hear from you. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Katie, how's it going? Hey, Jesse, pretty good. I saw an interesting paper today that I wanted to talk to you about real quick. Go for it. Okay, so this is a write-up from Reason Magazine by Robbie Suave, friend of the pod. Um, the headline is, Self-Victimhood is a Personality Type Researchers Find. And this is a section from his piece. A new paper in the scientific journal Personality and Individual Differences posits a tendency for interpersonal victimhood, an archetype defined by several truly toxic traits, a pathological need for recognition, a difficulty empathizing with others, feelings of moral superiority, as well as a thirst for pizza, attraction to gaming, possession of non-traditionally shaped thighs, propensity for equine relations, and Jesse, how tall are you? Six four. Oh my god, that is so weird. That is the exact same type of <laughs> same height as most people who display this personality type. What are the chances? That's weird. Um, yeah, I saw people posting headlines to that, but I was busy yesterday. I was I was doing this long, engrossing journal article about how you've wronged me and how <laughs> nobody recognizes how unfair I'm treated by you. You know, I just I'm like I'm very happy for you that uh, that somebody has finally studied. Somebody has gotten gotten into the depths of the Jesse per- Jesse single personality type. It's a disorder. <laughs> My entire personality is is going to be studied by psychologists for years to come. All right. Well, Jesse, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported. I say as I just compulsively check my phone for no reason. Uh, I am Jesse Single, a, a sick, sick man. I am Katie Herzog, the one tasked with dealing with this sick, sick man. And today we are going to be talking about a controversy that has been brewing within Google. Can you give a little quick synopsis here? Yeah, so the, the internet has been aflame. A highly regarded AI researcher named Timnit Gebru, who's very interested in questions of, of the intersection of artificial intelligence and social justice, has been ousted from Google. Uh, depending on whose account you believe, she either resigned or was fired. There's some fuzziness there. The short version is she co-authored this paper that was critical of some of Google's most exciting AI research. Google wanted her to take her name off the paper and not submit it to this conference. She made some demands pushing back and said, if you don't follow these demands, I quit. And then Google not only said, okay, you quit, but said, okay, you quit immediately. And they, uh, they cut off her access to her email. <laughs> immediately. Which when, when I seize control of this podcast, that is exactly what <laughs> You're just going to try to log in one day. I'm going to change all the passwords before that happens. Yeah. Um, so th- this has been covered as understandably a social justice story. And the general framing has been that, that Google has a problem with diversity, with listening to different voices. You know, it, it is a, a fairly white company, as is a lot of the tech world, white and Asian. Um, so, well, Asian is also white. So right, white, it's white and white adjacent. White and white adjacent. Uh, white horizontal. Um, so, so yeah, the, most of the coverage has, has settled. Well, everyone acknowledges there's stuff we don't know. Most of the coverage has settled on this idea that Google is more or less in the wrong. Tim the Gabriel is more or less in the right. You and I, not long after the story broke, especially you, for reasons we'll explain, started hearing things that made the story sound a little bit more complicated than that. And we eventually decided to bring on someone closer to this world, uh, 
than we are to, to help walk us through some of the details. So unless I'm missing anything from the basic introduction, should we just bring him on? Yeah, let's do it. John Stokes is a co-founder of Ars Technica, as well as a contributor to Wired Magazine. He has a bunch of different degrees, including a master's in divinity from Harvard, and he lives on a prepper compound in Texas. John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So this is a complicated morass of tech and drama and culture war. And you seem like the perfect person to guide us through this. You've been you've been tweeting about this a lot and your take's been very interesting. You have also taken several hours of your time to guide me through this. And so we wanted to have you on the show to sort of give the uh, give the smart man's perspective of what's going on. Um, so first of all, introduce us to the characters here. Who is Timnit Gabro? So Timnit is this, um, uh, I believe she's Ethiopian, and she is this very passionate AI ethicist, and she is the founder of the Black in AI group. And she's got kind of a, a mission to make the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, more diverse. So she is, she's one of the cast of characters. Another cast, uh, another character in this drama would be Jan LeCun, who is a French Turing Award winner. So the Turing Award is like what the is for computer science, what the Fields Medal is for mathematics, or you know maybe the Nobel Prize or something like this. It is the the brass ring in the field. And Lacoon is he won that Turing Award, I believe, in 2019. Um, if I'm he's chief AI at Facebook, and um, he won that award because he really brought artificial intelligence or was instrumental in bringing artificial intelligence out of what's called an AI winter which is a period of time when the field languishes because there's not a lot going on and they're not making progress on fundamental questions and there's no funding. And so Lacoon advocated for a specific approach to AI that proved to be very fruitful. And so he is responsible for a lot of, of AI and machine learning um, as it exists currently. Uh, him and his colleagues. Can you give us a, a brief rundown of what machine learning is? So machine learning is really about taking a machine, or taking a, a, a mathematical model, a weighted graph, and weighting it such that you give it a set of input tokens and it produces a set of output tokens. So you might say it's like if you're playing, and this is one way to benchmark these things. If you're playing a pattern matching game, like a basic analogy game, like you would, or a basic set of analogies, like you might see in an IQ test, like black is to white as, you know, light is to blank. And then somebody would say dark. And that kind of shows that they understand that analogy and they can give you the right, the right term. So you've given them this set of input tokens, black is to white as as light is to, and then you're asking for an output token, which is dark, which is like, you know, in the right context. Okay. And what is this used for? It's used increasingly for everything. So these, these models are, are behind, um, a lot of, of the search tech that we use. They're used in automated moderation at scale. So when you see these, um, these systems that are content moderation systems that are doing toxicity scoring where they're looking at comments and they're deciding uh, if this needs to be flagged for human moderation, um, this stuff is, is being applied to it. And so you take these models, these weighted graphs, 
and you train them with a certain kind of training algorithm. And there's a lot of math and science that goes into developing these different training algorithms. And you get a, a graph on the other end that, that produces the kinds of outputs that you need for the kinds of inputs that you give it. Okay. So to like vastly simplify it in this particular example, the machine learning would be the bots or the algorithms that that decide which content is going to be censored off of Twitter or YouTube or something like right. that. Right. Okay. So Twitter might feed their model a sample of toxic comments. Mostly Katie's probably. I was thinking Jesse's, but okay. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so then the, the Twitter would be able to go out and then let this loose in, in the, the Twitter stream and the bot itself can read, you know, more comments faster than a human can. And can flag them. So, so John, I mean, uh, maybe this is an obvious example, but like this stuff, uh, I, I have an Alexa, I have several Alexa devices because I want Amazon to just know everything I do. But that's an example of like some of the recent advances of AI that, that Alexa is now pretty decent at, at parsing basic questions or statements I can provide it, right? That's right. Uh, the Alexa is good at taking the, the, um, processed audio from your voice and extracting some words from it. Um, so there's, there's machine learning that's used to go from this is the audio data to these are the words that are in the audio. And then there's another set of models that go from these are the words that, that Jesse spoke into Alexa. And this is what we think he meant based on his past shopping history and, you know, his, his voice and all the other million things that Amazon knows about Jesse. Okay. And, and, and a lot of the sort of major ethical or social justice issues, they come from the fact that the way you get these AIs good is you, you train them on a big data set, right? Yeah. This is, uh, this is one of the, so in the original AI winter that lasted up until about 2010, it was thought that there was some fundamental breakthrough in terms of modeling intelligence that was needed to get really spectacular results in language recognition, image recognition, like the ability to recognize a stop sign or to, you know, uh, place some words in context or produce words that sound like they produced by a human. Um, it was thought that we needed some new ways to think about intelligence and to model it. And one of the things that Lacoon and his contemporaries did was they said, you know, if we take the tools that we already have, these weighted graphs and different methods of training them, and we throw them at enormous data sets, like planetary scale data sets, terabytes and terabytes, um, they're going to start to look magical. And the results that we're going to get are going to be, are going to be qualitatively different than they would be at a smaller a smaller scale. Now, if you are training a, a, a biological intelligence, a, a person, um, a, an animal, often just a couple of one or two examples will suffice um, for that that critter or that person to get the get the gist of what's going on. So when I train my dog on the electric fence, my my smaller dog is really smart, and when he got hit once with the with the little shock, um, he knew not to go near the the white flag in the ground. So so that it just took him this one but and so this this is kind of a holy grail of of machine learning is 
trying to find ways to train these machines that you don't have to use these planetary scale data sets. Because for a human to understand what's going on, a human doesn't have to read the entirety of, of the Library of Congress to know what words mean. Um, but Google kind of does. So, so that's, that's part of the issue of the scale of these models. And, and the, where the sort of social justice concerns come in is the theory is that if you look at just all the stuff humans have produced, certain biases are embedded in that. Like if you pulled up all the people who have been doctors in the United States, they would be disproportionately white. And the theory is that those biases will then get regurgitated by the AI and that could have negative consequences. Do I have that approximately right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the idea is that if you are looking at a, if you're using as your training data set, if you're training the AI on a large corpus of language, then the AI can't do anything but reproduce the biases and the worldviews that are in that language that you trained it on. And so if you take, for instance, um, you know, all of the New York Times, um, then, and that's all you give it, then of course it's going to have a very New York Times centric, you know, view of reality. Insofar as we can speak of this thing having a view of reality, and this is part of the issue in this paper, these models don't actually understand anything. Right. Um, they are almost like a kind of turbo powered printing press. Uh, you know, movable type and Gutenberg, this was about the shift from writing to kind of mass production and printing. Okay. So, so there's obviously lots of ethical, um, like potential ethical problems with this. Like, for instance, you know, if you have, if all of your models are based on, on images of white guys, then maybe a black person wouldn't be able to unlock their phone showing with like the camera thing, right? Right. So that's one potential downside. If a black person can't unlock their phone because this, this, this technology has only been trained on white faces. And you also mentioned something to me about, um, about home loan applications. Could you go into that? Yeah. So this has been a, an example that's been brought up. And I think this is like an older example, but there's, it, it, but it's actually not out of date because this kind of thing is probably still happening is, you know, we have these, these lenders now that are not like just going on your experience score. They want to take in all this data and they want to look at your spending habits and determine what kind of credit to extend you. And it's this kind of customized credit thing. And what's been found in some of these cases is that maybe they're just looking at the zip code of the person who's applying for the loan. You know, you don't know that the machine has started to key on the zip code as a signal. Uh, that says if the person comes from the zip code, their credit's probably no good, jack up the rate. And so you could very well train one of these models into reinventing redlining. So where do Lacoon and Gabriel come into this? So um Lacoon and Gabriel mixed it up on Twitter where where someone had posted a picture of a a language or, or sorry, of a, of a face model. And actually, let me pause and just say that there are two ways that these models can be used. You can use them to pattern match an input, like a face or a string of words, and say, this face is a man, this face is a woman, this face is smiling. Or you can use them to generate uh, new faces. So you can train them so that you 
you give it like a base and then it can generate a version of that face that's smiling, like the deep fakes thing. So the deep fakes is like the, the model kind of running reverse. So somebody had a Twitter picture of, you know, some grainy looking image of Obama and then they ran it through this, this generative, uh, ML and, and it came out with a picture of a white dude. Um, you know, the idea is like, okay, well, this is biased. This, this model is biased because it has, it has sort of white faced this picture of Obama and, and Lacoon pipes up and says, well, the problem isn't the model. The problem is the data set that it was trained on. And if you trained a data set on, uh, the population of, I believe Senegal, then you would get a different, um, uh, different, uh, you know, output. And, and so that triggered this whole cascade of a pylon where Gabriel showed up and said, you know, I am so exhausted. Um, I keep having to explain this to you at your conferences. And, you know, I, we have published this work and try reading a book and, you know, so on and so forth. Like, this is not the problem. You can't blame the engineers. You can't blame the data set. The problem is the, you know, institutional biases in AI. And so on and so forth. Before, before we move past that, I mean, what, what am I missing? Cause it seems intuitively true that if a model looks at, you know, a corpus of 90% white faces versus, you know, a, a, something that better matched the population of the earth, it wouldn't make a mistake like that. Did Gabriel have a substantive point there? Or was just, ju- this just sort of an online pylon without much merit behind it? Um, that's, that's tough for me. I had the same reaction you did. I have not read all of her work. The work that I have read, um, seems to bear out Lacoon's point. And in fact, there's a paper, uh, that I, that I did a thread on, which you also did a thread on a newsletter on that indicates that, yeah, the data set is the thing that matters. Um, so I asked people about this. I talked to people about this and what I heard is that, okay, some of the models themselves, some of the algorithms, the untrained algorithms can have bias. Um, but this is almost a philosophical question because it's not until you actually trained this and weighed it with a data set that you would even be able to infer that the algorithm is biased in some way. So it's, it's a, um, it's hard to think of an analogy, but it's almost like saying, you know, there are, um, impurities in this, in this steel that mean that it wants to bend in one way or another if you try and forge it, you know. So there could be some deep, weird biases, um, latent in an algorithm. They wouldn't be like racial biases, but they may be, they may respond to certain kinds of signals in certain ways that when you combine them with a data set, you get a certain kind of bias. Anyway, this is, um, this is, of course, a, uh, almost a philosophical thing. And it seems that what Gabriel wants is to say, you know, look, um, you can't just kick the can down to the implementation team and to the engineering team. Um, if these models that you produced are going to be trained on data sets and they're going to produce bad outcomes for minorities or for, you know, people in Africa, um, or, or, you know, people that just aren't, aren't privileged, uh, privileged Americans, then you as a researcher bear some responsibility for that, Jan Lacoon. Um, you have to think about your role in this. Um, everybody has to think about their role in this. You have to think, are these things I should be working on? What can I do myself to mitigate harm? How can I 
approach my entire research project with the goal of, um, you know, empowering the marginalized or lifting up certain people or challenging the hegemonic worldview or whatever. And of course, Lacoon's quite rational response is in the in the response of people like him is, is kind of like, um, that's kind of not my job. (laughs) I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a math nerd. I'm, you know, in front of a whiteboard all day. I'm not an ethicist. You know, so on and so forth. Well, when was this exchange between them? This exchange between them was in July. I believe if you go to their timelines, it's about Ju- it's on July twenty first. And, and and we should just be clear that at this point, Gabriel was already working in Google's sort of ethical AI department, right? That's right. Okay, and and Lacoon's official role was what? He's at Facebook, and he is I I'd have to look up, but he's like you know head of AI at Facebook or or some higher up. There, but see the the thing about this field, it's very small. It's like any of these, you know, computer graphics, uh, microprocessor architecture, ML. Like at the top, there's a there's a circle of people that you can fit all into a room. And in fact, Gabriel did fit them all into a room in her first Black and AI conference. Um, and so all these people are, are they kind of move in this you know this conference set, and and then you know they're surrounded by graduate students and. You know, um, junior researchers and stuff like this. Katie, do we have any other background we should get to or should we jump right to the sort of precipitating incident? No, let's get to it. I think that the thing to, the thing to note here is that these two people are illustrating this fundamental conflict within the field, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think that this incident is kind of a, a, a microcosm of something really deep in this field. It's, it's also a woke versus, you know, clueless nerd conflict. Um, I mean, I hate to say clueless nerd about Jan LeCun. I mean, he's, you know, he's a genius. Um, but bear with me on the stereotypes here. And, and I think, I, I think clueless nerd is, is apt here because there's a sort of person where like, if you, if you're not familiar with this ideology, right. um, and then like you say something like, it's not my job to care about, about social justice, that, that does not go over well in these communities. Yeah, he just stepped on a rake, and then he kind of kept stepping on it. Okay, so let's fast forward to this past week. What happened? So this past week, Gabriel was fired, or she resigned. Um, opinions That's differ. the question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah opinions differ. <laughs> okay, so work us through this. How did this start? So my, my understanding of this is that she wanted to submit this paper called Stochastic Parrots, which, um, which I have a copy of, and, and I've read it. Um, and, and you guys have now seen it. Uh, and she wanted to submit this paper to this, this conference that's taking place right now, actually. Oh, I bet that is a fun conference to be at. Although I guess it's probably all on Zoom at this point. Huh? Exactly. And, uh, and, and she, she wanted to submit this paper. She sent it to Google. And my understanding, uh, is that she gave them like a day to, to go through it. Um, which, which was considered a little bit hostile. Um, and, and they went and they looked at this paper and they tried to nope it. And I don't recall the details. So Jeff Dean was her boss's boss. And he really pushed back on this and said, this can't go out under the Google name. And he gave some reasons which are, are widely considered to be kind of pretextual, um, you know, aka BS. He basically said it did, it didn't meet their standards, but he didn't get more specific than that, right? Right. He said it didn't meet their standards, but then even that, it's like, that's, he's not the, it's supposed to meet the field standards, not Google standards. Um, 
So there were problems there. So he just, he really, uh, he kicked it back. And of course, so she was furious and she said, look, uh, if you want me to continue working at this company, then you will, you know, meet these demands to show that, you know, you have a commitment to real change. And I, I don't remember the list of demands, but it was some list. It was an ultimatum. It was some list of you have to do this, this, and this. And then I will believe that you're serious about, about AI and ethics and making real change in the world and so on and so forth. And so. And, and one, one of the, one of the items that I thought was noteworthy was she said, I, I want to know the names of every person who reviewed the paper and was responsible for this decision. Yeah. Yeah. She, she wanted, she wanted names and that, uh, you can see given that she is sort of notorious for attacking people who disagree with her, um, why you might not want to give her all the names. Let, let's pause there for a second. So, um, so her, her response to, uh, Lacan, it, it sort of illustrates this. Um, but she did, it appears that she did have this personal style that was very combative and, uh, and, you know, sort of regularly accusing people of things like racism, um, in a way that from the outside looks like a, like a disagreement would occur and her go-to would be sort of like, you're a racist. Am I getting that right? Yeah. This is one of the things that's been kind of difficult for me in all this because people that are as driven and as brilliant as she is um, often have an abrasive personal style. I mean, the world is full of examples. Like even Steve Jobs is notorious, was notorious for this and, you know, so you, you kind of want to, you kind of want to have some forgiveness there for the, the sort of delicate genius act. But the problem is that her particular flavor of abrasion matches so closely to a standard kind of social justice warrior script that gets played out again and again and again in, in tech companies and in media companies and which you guys talk about. And it's simply that, um, disagreement is taken as harm and further marginalization and then refusing to engage because you're scared of getting accused of, of racism, refusing to engage is taken as erasure and you're supposed to just unenthusiastically signal boost. Right. So there's this Reddit thread, uh, after, after all of this happened, um, some, some Googlers got on Reddit and they anonymously talked about what it was like to work with her. Someone starts the thread saying, Timnit, if you were reading this former colleague here, you were wondering, am I, this is a quote, I guess, am I radio- radioactive? Why did nobody talk to me about this? The Redditor says, yes, you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly it. Anything that is not singing you or your work praises gets turned into an attack on you and all possible minorities immediately and possibly into big drama. Hence, nobody care- dares to give you honest negative feedback. Ain't got no time to deal with this in addition to do everything else a researcher does. And then so someone responds to that and says, another ex-colleague here, I was not going to participate in the discussions, but your post made me realize objective truth should come out. Um, to give a concrete example of what it was like to work with her, I will describe something that has not come to light until now. When GPT-3, and that's the that's this particular machine learning model, right? That's a language the model. The language model, yeah. okay. 
When GPT-3 came out, a discussion thread was started in the Brain Papers group. Timnit was one of the first to respond with some of her thoughts. Almost immediately, a very high-profile figure has also responded with his thoughts. He is not Lacoon or Dean, but he is somebody close. What followed was the rest of the thread, Timnit blasting privileged white men for ignoring the voice of a black woman. Never mind that it was painfully clear that they were both writing their responses at the same time. Message after message, she would blast both the high-profile figure and anyone who said as much implied it could have been a misunderstanding. In the end, everyone just bent over backwards, apologizing to her, and the thread was abandoned after, uh, along with the whole Brain Papers group, which was relatively active up to this point. She has effectively robbed thousands of colleagues of insights into their senior thought process because she didn't immediately get attention. Um, and so this, just to be clear, I, I verified that this thread did happen within a Googler. So this is on Reddit, but this is, this is verified. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and, um, th- these are throwaway accounts. And I mean, we don't want to give too much details, but like the person Katie verified this with is not some rando. It is, it is someone who's in a position to know. And, uh, it, it seems to confirm that at least some people thought she was difficult to work with. Of course, in a situation like this where it blows up in the news, people are going to say all kinds of stuff in secret and try to leak stuff to journals and it gets, it gets very complicated. But, but John, it sounds like you've heard that this is a thing that, that whatever, to whatever extent she feels mistreated by Google, it can't a hundred percent be chalked up to sort of Google not getting it or being biased against her. There were also legitimate personality issues here. That's your understanding? Yeah. I have also heard from people in ML who have worked with her and who have worked with people who have worked with her. Um, I've heard from senior people privately, and I've heard from actually a surprising number of people at the grad student level who were like, yeah, you know, my professor warned me um, and had some horror stories are, you know, people that I know that are good friends uh, that were, a, were at Google while she was there, um, you know, confirm these accounts. So a lot of like kind of private back channel confirmation of the account of these accounts. And, you know, these are, these are from Twitter DMs and people that I can, I can look and see, um, you know, unless there's some sort of very sophisticated multi years long grift going on, um, are in fact a grad student, uh, at this place in ML or, you know, a, a, a senior person. And, and it's worth pointing out that the, the public reaction has been the exact opposite because there was quickly an open letter with, I think, like 1,500 Google signatures. Media coverage did, I, I think it's fair to say, like took her side on this. There was the only, the only, um, hypothesis suggested was, was Google failing in a big way. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I like to, to uh, rip on the media and as, and as irritated as I am about this, um, it, it's not, it's not, a um, it, I, I guess I would put it this way. Um, you know, Google is very powerful. This is a researcher in ethics. Um, she has seemingly brought to light some real harms of AI and some real risk of AI. Some of the stuff that she talks about are, you know, what we would think of as very extremely online quote harms, but some of them are actual like legit, you know, risk of life and limb and medical misdiagnosis level type of harm. So will you give us some examples of that? Oh, uh, one, I, one that, that came up in a conversation was a, and this isn't Google, but this is an example of the kind of thing that can happen. And it's very much like the red line example I gave earlier was a, uh, a, uh, image recognition model that was trained to recognize bone fractures and it was trained 
on x-rays. And what they found after training this thing, it, it was pretty good at recognizing bone fractures. And then they realized actually that it was using as a signal the the hospital had a um had like a number or a unique ID for each hospital where that where the x-ray came from in the corner of the x-ray. And there was this one hospital that tended to get most of the bone fractures. And so it just looked at the hospital, you know, of origin and then flagged bone fracture. Uh, so, so you can imagine that kind of, that kind of medical, in that kind of medical context, um, if these things are being used for drug development, if they're being used for diagnosis, if they're being used for treatment, uh, which increasingly they are, and there's talk of them doing this, that there could be like very substantial danger. Right. Okay. So this is, this is, I think what we should call actual harm. Um, yeah, and, actual harm yeah. versus, versus real harm, which, which I put in, <laughs> in deep quotation marks. So give us an example of her sort of this sort of concept creep from actual harm to quote unquote real harm. So the real harm stuff is in this stochastic parrots paper. In this paper, she sort of makes the jump from actual harm to culture war quote real harm. And the reaction, this is the paper that, that got her fired, supposedly. Um, right. The reaction to this paper from all of the, the ML people that I have spoke to and clearly that Wired has spoken to from their reporting um, is that, well, what is to see here? This is, as, as somebody put it to me, um, this was not the hill to die on. And the, the, the ML, the machine learning people are looking at this paper like, this is out there. It's none of this stuff is like that new. Um, you know, none of this, none of this here is very surprising. Um, but I think if you look at this paper with your culture war hat on, with your politics hat on in the context of Google and antitrust, um, and in the context of the moderation wars that are going on online, then when she says things like, you know, um, the language model, a large language model is going to um, reproduce a hegemonic worldview or reify whatever, you know, whatever academia is a, a hegemonic worldview. And it's going to not represent marginalized voices because you've got this big uncurated data set. And so it will reproduce ableist and sexist and racist discourse and transphobic discourse and stuff like this then you start to get a sense of of kind of where this is all headed. Right. And, and I mean, so we should maybe just slightly zoom out or just be clear, like the paper is mostly just a critique of these massive machine learning models. And it offers various reasons to be skeptical of them, including the fact that they use so much energy, that climate change mostly affects, you know, like poor people off in some island somewhere who aren't going to benefit from Alexa and the other advances. But yeah, one of the main points is this idea that – um you know, the, the team even says at one point that machine learning could produce language with microaggressions that it might not take into account the latest advances in Black Lives Matters, stuff like that. And I guess what jumped out at me, John, was like this idea that GPT-3 or, or whatever other model is supposed to produce language that's perfectly in line with like what the educated elites in 2020 America think, or am I being unfair in that? No, that's, that's spot on. And, and in fact, I think the paper is, is realistic about the fact that that's impossible, which is why the, the point of the paper, you know, per the title is basically 
um, and, you know, I'm using a printout like an old person, um, can language models be too big? And the answer is clearly a yes. Uh, from the paper, they're, they're essentially saying, look, if you're going to cast a wide enough net, you're not going to be able to control the fact that the output of these language models is not going to be approved by the latest, you know, diktat from BLM or, or from whoever is, is, is trying to control the discourse. It was interesting to me that, um, so, so Katie's source in Google basically said that, it, it wasn't quite that the paper was like unsupported. One of, I think, Jeff Dean's arguments was like they, they didn't just refer to the latest language and he was sort of vague about why it didn't pass muster. Katie Source said it was more that like, you know, it does have a lot of citations, but this is really like more of a position paper than a paper advancing new original research from Google. Do you think that's a valid critique or, or no? Uh, I think it's probably a valid description of the paper. Um, whether it's a critique or not, I, you know, I don't know, but I think that's probably, and that seems to be the general machine learning nerd consensus. This is a position paper. Yeah. Right. He, he was basically, he basically was like, this is an op-ed. This is yeah. not a research paper. And one of the other things that you mentioned to me when we spoke was that she didn't engage with, she, she basically cherry picked arguments that, or cherry picked data that would support her position without engaging with, uh, with the other side, essentially. Yeah. I want to be careful there because there is dispute about the degree to which she and her allies are willing to look at work that is aimed at mitigating these impacts. Um, and, and this is, this is, di this is difficult because, you know, there is an, there is an impression that I have, which, uh, may be wrong, which I've gotten from, from talking to one or two people and just from the lacoon thing and from the other feedback, the impression that I have is that she has an end it, don't mend it attitude towards like the field. She wants to make big structural change. And this is actually why I analogize this to defund the police you know, or to police abolition. You, know, you have that school that says, well, let's just retrain cops or let's just give them all tasers or get, let them shoot at the legs or something. And then you have the people that are like, no, the problem is property, the institution of private property and, you know, capitalism and all this. And we're going to overthrow capitalism and private property and we're not going to have police and we're going to use this um, indigenous method of, you know, whatever uh, justice and so on and so forth. And so you got that dynamic at work in the in that debate. And I felt like I was seeing that dynamic here. And then I also had other people tell me that they think this is, this is part of the dynamic, which is you've got people that are like, you know, we can just tweak the data sets. Uh, this is not, and this would be the Jan LeCun, um, thing that got him in trouble, which is to say, look, the answer is to just have better data and have the engineers more educated about how to use these things and you train them and it's kind of problem solved. And, and I think what she, and her allies may want is to say, well, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to accept this kind of small patch because we're trying to see the whole system remade. We want the field to look more diverse. Um, we want people to go to work and she, and she's clear. She wants the AI researchers and the natural language processing researchers to go to work thinking about how they can do more justice that day on the job. Um, you know, so, so, so in her view, 
the sense I got from the paper is like this whole enterprise is so suffused with these sort of deep-seated societal biases that basically anything you build and when you build it you're doing it at great cost of energy and resources anything you built is going to be so tainted that that we really need to start from from scratch almost anything i i would say that in this for this particular paper what she's saying and and this is of course true if your plan is to ingest the entirety of the world wide web then you're going to get a language model that looks like the World Wide Web. And she doesn't like the web. She thinks that Reddit is too white and too male, um, which is, this is in the paper. You know, that's like a lot of these things are trained on Reddit. Um, and, you know, I don't want Reddit's speech norms and understandings of language to be encoded in this model. So to the extent that the web, the language that's on the web itself is a kind of a, a, a sample, but it's not a representative sample. And then maybe this is a better way to put it. If you think of the language on the web, whether it's the language on Reddit, the language in Wikipedia, the language at the Times, at the Post, this is a, a self-selected um, sample of language. It's not the language of, it's not the silent, you know, um, oppressed minorities. It's the language of people who can get on the web and who can post to Reddit and stuff like this. Any, if you're, so if you're pulling all of that in and you're building a language model with it, the language model is going to reflect those biases. That's why I'm calling it a printing press, uh, for ideas. It's going to take the ideas and the representations and the biases that you feed into it, and it's going to reproduce them and reify them in new ways. And she is correct. That is correct. That is actually how it's going to, what's going to happen. And so the root problem then is, okay, well, are we going, do we want a language model that reflects the web as it exists? Or do we want a language model that reflects the web as some particular activist or ethicist thinks it should be? That's the question. Okay. More on that in a moment, but first a word from our sponsors. Katie, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night choking and screaming and crying because you accidentally inhaled one of the countless scraps of discarded dental floss littering your decrepit hovel of a Brooklyn apartment? Jesse, I don't live in a decrepit hovel of a Brooklyn apartment. I live on my own island. Yeah, that that hasn't happened to me either. <laughs> but it sure sounds unpleasant. That's why I'm grateful for the existence of Quip's sleek, reusable floss pick. I mean, everyone has heard of the Quip electric toothbrush. It's the talk of the town, literally the biggest story of 2020. But studies have shown that not everyone has heard of Quip's reusable floss pick, and that's a shame because it is far and away one of the most fully featured reusable floss picks to be released in this country in this particular time period. The durable handle is easy to guide, restrains with a click, and it comes with a compact mirror dispensing case for on-the-go. Plus, a single refill pod replaces over 180 single-use plastic flossers, so it's better for your teeth and the environment. This holiday season, check out Quip's exclusive deals. If you go to getquip.com slash barpod right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash barpod. Spell G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash barpod. Quip. Better oral health made simple. So, yeah, John, I mean, I think that sort of gets to the heart of one of my critiques of this paper, which is like it it's going in, in two directions at once. It's saying um, the residents, the poor residents of these islands that are going to be flooded from carbon emissions 
in part caused by training these models. Although, of course, in the grand scheme of things, like that's a drop in the bucket compared to air travel and everything else. But then on the other hand, it's saying it's a problem that that Me Too and BLM might not be reflected in these models. I think maybe this this shares a feature with a lot of this discourse, which is failing to recognize that, you know, Me Too and BLM and these specific types of language they're using, these these are elite things. They're, they're asking for one sort of maybe form of, of elite hegemony to be replaced by another. It's not it's not the poor islanders who are, who are writing papers about Black Lives Matter, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, you're, you're, you won't be surprised to hear that. Um you know, there, this is a fight over power. And this is the problem that Lacoon and the other ML people have. This is why they step on the rake. Um, they, they think they're having a fight over how to patch a piece of technology so that it works a little better. But really, this is a fight about language and power and who gets to say how the world is and how the world should be. If there is a, uber powerful world spanning language model that is behind this the google search box google only has one search box it doesn't have you know um i mean it has customized results but there is going to be a language model that sits behind there and it's going to reflect some view of language and the relationships between words so then the question is is it going to reflect the relationships between words that are found natively on the web in the web in the web crawling that it does or is it going to reflect the relationships between words that specific activist groups think should pertain and think should be enforced in media and in academia and in everyday, you know, language? Who is going to decide how you fill in that analogy? A man is the doctor as woman is to blank. Who decides that? Okay. So besides this particular conflict, why was this paper, and I'm asking you to speculate here, but why is this, why is she, besides her sort of personality, uh, her caustic personality, why is this particular attitude or this paper so threatening to Google? I think it's threatening to Google because one, they, they sort of pivoted in 2018 to say we are an AI first company. Google is an AI company. This is what we do. So the business team then, which, which Jeff Dean is, kind of the avatar for inside of Google AI, um, the business team began to take a close look at the AI ethics stuff and the things coming out of the AI. If you have uh, people inside of Google and they are trying to sound the alarm over these ethics violations, and the ethics violations are in some cases real and serious, uh, then, then that could get you in trouble. So I think the analogy that I that I think is maybe appropriate is tobacco and lung cancer and Philip Morris, you know, um, it's not, it's one thing for us to learn that, uh, tobacco causes lung cancer. It's another thing to know that Philip Morris knew this from their own internal, you know, studies like way back when and tried to suppress it. So I think this is what Google worries about. What if one of these ethics researchers finds actual harm, um, which is by all accounts abounds in this space. And like, for instance, in, in a medical algorithm, an algorithm that backs some kind of doctor oriented product publishes on it. And then somebody dies and it, in it, we find out that there was a paper that essentially pointed out that this was possible. And then it happened anyway. 
that would be extra bad. Um, and the, the underlying fear that, that kind of hangs over all this is the fear of government regulation. Google doesn't want to be regulated in any way. They don't want to be broken up and they don't want AI regulated. And Gabriel has in fact floated the idea in one of her papers of a kind of an FDA, uh, for, for machine learning. And a lot of her work is around benchmarks and standards and the kinds of things that you would need to benchmark and measure bias in the models that Google uses and the kind of thing that an external agency would use to decide if, you know, this AI is, is safe and is suitable uh, for whatever purpose. It's just like the paper didn't say even even I, someone who's not that familiar with the subject, like all the points in it seemed rather obvious. So I think maybe that's why maybe I have the same question of Katie about like what what is it about this paper in particular? I mean, I, the other thing was like it just seems like the paper was sort of anti-machine learning is in its present form in general. It was much more about like pointing out the problems than really raising possible solutions except in the most general way. I guess if I try to to put on my my fake Google um Sundar Pichai glasses and read this, I'm gonna cue on a few things given the jeopardy that Google's in, you know, vis-a-vis Ted Cruz and and Holly and all these other these other characters. First, in the title, too big. Can the models be too big? Yeah, that's not a good I mean, idea. come on. Come did, on. Did Elizabeth Warren write that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so that's the title of the paper. Is this thing that is inside of Google too big? And then the answer is yes, it probably is too big. So, you know, that's the first thing I'm going to key on if I'm reading this with my, with my Google hat on. The second thing I'm going to key on is all of this stuff about um, well, Black Lives Matter and, you know, all these, uh, Me Too, all of these people should get a say in how the Google language model operates. You know, this is likely to send Ted Cruz into orbit. Uh, so, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna wave a copy of this in the Senate hearing. So that is my speculation as to why this paper, um, was the hill that she ended up dying on. Gotcha. Okay. So. Let's zoom out again to what happened. So just to, to recap really quickly. So she submits this paper for review. Uh, she gives them one day to review it. Um, they send it, they kick it back to her and say this paper, uh, either fix it or take your name off of it. Is that all correct there? Yeah. I, th- I think they said, I think they gave her some remedies and or take your name off. I think that, that Katie's representation is correct, but I would have to go back to the record. Yeah. So. She gives them a, a an ultimatum, um, and the ultimatum is you make these changes or I'm going to walk. And they say, okay, or she says, I'm going to, we'll work on my exit date. And they respond and they say, okay, like, this is it, you know, like collect your things and, and take them outside. I, I don't, I think the response was she no longer had access to her company email. You know, okay. she got, she got booted from Slack. Okay. Um, and so between, between those two things happening, she sent out another email to the staff, right? Yeah. She sent out another email 
basically saying all of this DEI stuff that you're all working on is, 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 is you know, not going to do anything and you should just stop working on it because the company isn't serious. All right. So this is the, we'll post a link to this. Uh, this is, this is the email that starts out, hi friends. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph. I had stopped writing here, as you may know, all after all the micro and macro aggressions and harassment I received after posting my stories here, and then, of course, started being moderated. Um, and then she goes into sort of what happens, and she basically says this DEI, this is diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's basically saying that all of this DEI efforts, that this must be for like a particular DEI listserv. Um, basically, none of this works. This is all performative, and you should quit doing it. Yeah, yeah. And what's, of course, fascinating to me is that that has been like the right wing or the not even the right wing, but the non woke critique of a lot of this stuff all along. Right. This yeah, is our position. Yeah. yeah. This, that this stuff is just performance. Yeah. <laughs> Timbrit Gabriel, yeah. come on, blocked reporting. Yeah, get her, get her take on, on white fragility. Um, yeah. But, but so what, what's interesting here to me is that, you know, she has, she's clearly like very, her politics are clearly very woke. In this way. Um, but also this DEI work is also very woke. So the way that you put it to me is this isn't like, like, like woke versus anti woke. This is true believers versus the sort of Google performance. Yeah. Yeah. And this is playing out a bit on Twitter too. I think a lot. And I showed you some of the threads where the people that are doing this work are sort of like, okay, well, these companies want a woke wash and we want real change. You know, right. we want revolution right. and we're, we're increasingly unwilling to be, uh, you know, to be co-opted and to have DEI co-opted and to have ethics co-opted, um, in service of this capitalist predatory capitalist agenda and in service of white supremacy. And, you know, because nothing is actually changing. And so this is kind of, this is a mood, this is a mood and, right. You know, these people are turning a narrow eye at the D'Angelo's and the consultants of the world. Well, we have just, that in common. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who are just basically trying to make a buck right. off of off of running workshops and selling okay. books. Okay, gotcha. So she uh, is from from her perspective, she is fired by Google. From Google's perspective, she quits. Um, Jeff Dean releases a, a a statement, and then there's massive outcry within the company. Um, according to my source at Google, there is immense pressure to conform, social pressure, not pressure from like Google higher ups, but just within the organization right now. Like if you are not with with Tenet, like keep your mouth shut. Um, and then apparently, I'm not I'm not sure why I heard this, but apparently uh, they were circulating. The, they were, they were circulating the, this, this, this petition to support her with open names, right? Yeah, I thought the version, I didn't see the note, but the version, Business Insider says more than a thousand Google employees have signed a letter demanding answers from leadership after a top AI researcher was fired. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so there's this immense pressure to conform within the organization. And then so a couple days ago, uh, Google announces that they're actually going to investigate what happened, right? Right. So where does this leave us all? It's, it's, you know, it's an interesting story because in some ways it does seem like this David versus Goliath story. You know, she is David, Google is Goliath. But in other ways, it seems like this could also be a story of Google wanting to oust her because she was horrible to work with. Yeah, there are so many layers here. I think there are all these things going on. I think she was difficult to work with. I think that probably the people on her team that she brought in, uh, were, were difficult to work with and did not fit with some of the ML folks. I mean, my understanding is that some of these people may not have been the most technical, but they are kind of committed true believer, you know, ethics types like her. 
And so there was always a sort of oil and water thing that, that went on. There was a dynamic where Jeff Dean apparently made big, big promises to lure these people in and to lure her in. Um, and they were, so he recruited, yeah, her. he recruited her and he was, I think, from by all accounts, quite sincere. I mean, Dean apparently spent a lot of his childhood in Africa and he has by some reports donated significantly to these different diversity causes. And I think that he is also uh, a true believer and people, even people who are very woke and who are, who are uh, attacking me and who are attacking anyone who, who disagrees with Timnit, like um, uh, Anima Anankumar at, at, uh, at NVIDIA, director of AI at NVIDIA, who is one of Gabriel's allies, she is criticizing Dean, but she's criticizing him from a, you know, Dean is a good guy, but even good guys are supporting the patriarchy, you know, because of this and that, and we have to cut him off. And, you know, it pains me. And so, so he's apparently well liked and, and was before this seen as an ally. Right. So the problem with the story is that there isn't really a clear, uh, you know, villain and, and hero narrative, which is unfortunate. I want, I want this to be clear. No, we can contrive something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's flip Gabriel's a coin. the hero. Uh, Google's the uh, villain. Uh, you know, well, that's the, that's the dominant narrative. So we should actually probably go with the opposite of that. Jesse, sorry. We're on team Google now. <laughs> uh, Jesse, you've been paying attention more to the coverage of this. Um, and you know, if you read, I think most, most, you know, mainstream media coverage or tech coverage that there is sort of a, a very clear victim and hero narrative here or villain and hero narrative. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was going to say like, it's sort of been bugging me that a lot of the coverage of this is very, a little bit one-sided and like the New York Times coverage has some you know, thinly veiled, just straight up editorializing. They very much want it to be the case that like, you know, this, this brave woman was sort of ousted unfairly. And it's clear there's details we don't know about. It's clear Google didn't handle this gracefully, but it struck me that, that Katie, you were able to like very quickly get the other side of the story without having to do like Woodward and Bernstein level investigating. And then I see that side of the story. Do you think that you think that my sleuthing is not Woodward and Bernstein level? (laughs) I'm Jesse, saying b- between that- between giant vape hits, you were able. <laughs> <laughs> it, it struck uh, me how quickly you and I, me via your reporting, were able to get in touch with people telling a different story, and that view was basically completely absent from most mainstream accounts, and that that worries me a little bit. I mean, I mean, John, you you whatever you think about this, you you have some critiques of tech coverage, right? Yeah, you know, and the the um. Uh, you can see why it's absent though, because nobody wants to reinforce a quote, angry black woman narrative. Um, nobody wants to magnify off the record, you know, whisper stuff that's negative about a person. Um, and you know, nobody wants to kind of, uh, disturb the David versus Goliath, you know, narrative that's going on, especially since so many people that probably I've, that I've talked to and that probably many of these reporters have talked to are saying she was doing important work. Some of the work, the work here is important and it is, she has done important work. John, one thing that we talked about on the phone yesterday was about how, you know, it would be easy to sort of look at this as, as, you know, the black people of Google are, are a monolith or the minorities of Google are a monolith in terms of supporting Timnit, but that's not actually the case. Yeah, that's right. There is a lot of diversity within the, um, 
you know, black, black and AI team, um, within these different groups within Google, there's a diversity around if black and AI is even the right name for this. There's diversity around, uh, tactics. Is her abrasive style helping or is it hurting? Um, I, I have heard from people who think that she is hurting the cause of diversity with these kinds of derailing tactics around, you know, I'm exhausted. Um, it's not my job to educate you, all that kind of stuff. Um, there are people who look at that and say, uh, this is bad. She should stop doing it. It's making things worse. Okay. Well, this is a very, this has been very interesting. Thank you for guiding us through this convoluted story. Jesse, do you have any other questions for John? I don't think so. Uh, do we, did we mention his website, the prepared? No, let's mention his website. John, tell us about your website. Yeah, currently theprepared.com, um, emergency preparedness. We were on this COVID stuff really early and, um, help people stock up and get ready for the lockdowns and for, you know, the stuff that was happening and the stuff that's going to happen. Can, can I quickly tell you what my stockpiles are and you can tell me if I'm sufficiently prepared? Sure. <laughs> okay. I have two cans of beans, uh, and half a pound of expired flour. Will that get me through the next disaster? Um, you could. Probably poison a prepper with that stuff and then steal his stash. <laughs> and so, then take yeah, his yeah. place. Okay. I'm coming okay. for you, John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, John. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I was glad we had John on. He's like a very smart guy and you can tell he's like a, a nuanced and fluid thinker. Like he's not going to fall for some oversimplified narrative as much as we were trying to get him. <laughs> yeah. It's great to have people on the show who actually know what they're talking about for once as well. Nice change of pace. It's a very different tone, but I think it worked for us. Yes. Uh, as always, you can reach out to us at blocked and reported podcasts at gmail.com. You can rate and review us on Apple podcasts. We're up over a thousand ratings. Thank you so much. We are currently at 4.7. We, we seem to be winning the 4.6, 4.7 war. Let's expand our territory into 4.8 Estan. Am- ambitious. Yeah. I'm going to uh, just just open up a second front in this war. Uh, yes, check out our subreddit, uh, reddit.com slash r slash botch reported. Jesse, can I, uh, can I interrupt for a second to read something that was on our subreddit the other day? Do it. Someone on our Reddit, our subreddit posted, imagine being deathly afraid of 50-year-old lesbians, and someone else responded, this is Llama Fresh Farms, Inc. In fairness, there's no demographic more likely to come to her window, crawl inside, and wait by the light of the moon. <laughs> like one of those quizzes like you were born in the 80s if you get this yeah. joke uh also please consider pre-ordering my book the quick fix indie bound or amazon would make a big difference if you could i think that is it do we have anything else to say yes we have a members only program at patreon.com it's patreon.com slash and reported if you join our patreon you get ad free episodes you get at least three extra episodes a month, sometimes more. You get access to live chats. Um, I'm more likely to respond to your emails. Uh, and we're about to record, I think, what's going to be a really good one about a new article in The Atlantic that was a hate crime. The article itself was a hate crime. Also, we're up over 3,400 patrons, so you get to join one of the most exclusive communities on the planet. I highly recommend it. Yeah, and we are uh, our Patreon is doing really well. If we get to twenty thousand dollars in monthly donations by the end of the year, I will tell our patrons the name of the band I was in in my twenties. I think you're gonna have to throw in some video, but but we'll talk about that uh. later. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Singlin. Remember that while I am a human being, Katie Herzog is but a poorly programmed artificial intelligence. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, in the story of David versus Goliath, Google always wins. Mm-hmm.